Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and patient care. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit oncdata.com for more content, including expert perspectives from leading oncology thought leaders, FDA approvals, patient advocacy, and much more. And don't forget to subscribe to Oncology Data Advisor on social media to stay up to date on the latest videos, podcasts, and more. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining our Oncology Data Advisor podcast today. My name is Will Gossuck, and I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at NYU, and I'll be starting an oncology fellowship at UChicago. Today, we'll be discussing uh, uh, gallbladder and bowel duct uh, cancer awareness month. This is a condition that affects you know five to 8,000 people annually, and even though it's rare, it can be very... Uh, devastating for patients. I recall in my inpatient oncology service having to take care of patients with late-stage complications of biliary cancer, both intrahepatic and extrahepatic, and also patients with gallbladder cancer, having to track the biliary labs every day, having difficult conversations about goals of care and code status, and really trying to find ways to promote comfort for people in their last moments. Um, I'll let Dr. Hackel introduce himself, and if you want to tell me a little about your experiences in, in, in treating uh, these cancers, that'll be great, man. Yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I'm Matt Hatfield. I'm a third year medical oncology fellow at Brown University in the Legoretta Cancer Center in, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, uh, Calandria carcinoma is a very tough uh, cancer to treat. So, um, you know, I've had multiple patients throughout my fellowship training uh, who presented to the hospital and, and across the tree have experienced this as well. P- patients who have calandria carcinoma can often present with, um, you know, hepatobiliary disease. So, like obstructive patterns when they when they present, they can be very very sick, and 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 sometimes uh, they can be so sick at presentation that they can uh, be difficult to treat with with standard uh, treatments. Um, I think thankfully uh, over the last you know several years we've had some advancements in the treatment of glandiocarcinoma, uh, particularly the the advent of using immune checkpoint inhibitors in combination with chemotherapy, which has improved overall survival. Um, and, and we've started to use more whole exome sequencing, identifying different driver mutations such as BRAF and TREC. Um, and, and HER2 um, IHC expression is something that's become very relevant in, in the most recent years uh, across a lot of solid tumors, but, but particularly cholangiocarcinoma. So it's a very difficult uh, patient population to treat, unfortunately. And, um, you know, we, we really do need more novel therapeutic control, uh, approaches to, to better prolong survival in this patient population. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dr. Hatfield. Uh, one thing I sort of want to talk about is that uh, I know you recently published a study and review on cholangiocarcinoma in the international in the International Journal of Molecular Science. Can you just tell me a sort of interesting point or something you learned that was surprising from your experience with that research? Yeah, I think some of the things that uh, we've seen in cholangiocarcinoma um, haven't um, matched up with other uh, malignancies. For instance, um, you know, there's tissue agnostic approval for BRAF inhibitors, not BRAF MAC, in 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 um, and all solid tumors expressing BRAF B600E mutations. But if you look at the prospective data in glandiocarcinoma, there's very few patients who have BRAF B600E mutations. But of those that do, they don't seem to respond as well as other tumors, particularly lung or or obviously melanoma, where where BRAF uh, MAC is second line um, standard of care therapy with with really high response rates and durable responses. So I think that's an interesting, um, you know, part of the the pathophysiology of how how those mutations work in cholangio versus um, other cancers. Um, I also think, you know, some of that maybe again, like people with hepatobiliary cancers, they they tend to be very sick and very hard to treat. They have a lower performance status secondary to their their malignancy. So treating them successfully and keeping them on on therapy without having significant side effects and toxicities can be very challenging. Um, some of the more interesting things in glandiocarcinoma that have uh, been developed recently is um, 
the uh, ivacitinib for IDH1 uh, mutated, which now has a, an FDA approval, I believe, in the second line setting, um, which is is a, a desperately need uh, needed um, you know biomarker driven therapy for for those patients who progress on frontline chemo IO or or IO alone, depending on the performance status. Um, some other, other interesting things are um, MUC1 is a surface uh, protein that's uh, been shown to correlate with, um, you know, more aggressive uh, cholangiocarcinoma. And, and uh, there have uh, now been preclinical uh, studies looking at MUC1, both uh, antibody drug conjugates, uh, as well as um, adaptive cellular therapies. So, you know, I think we are developing more uh, uh, therapeutic targets. Um, you know, uh, hopefully, I think the, the big things that we need to think about with glangio is much like every other cancer, we really need to get whole exome sequencing on these patients' time of diagnosis. We really need to make sure that if we identify a driver mutation, we treat them uh, with a targeted therapy. Um, these are things that outside big academic medical centers still be uh, still prove to be very big logistical hurdles for community oncologists and, and uh, really raising awareness that, uh, around that issue is, uh, is really important. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. I definitely agree about sort of the need for getting better testing uh, for different carcinomas. Uh, I do know that patients um, who test for HER2 positive by blood-based sort of NGS may not necessarily be positive on central testing. So we have sort of have a lack of standard HER2 testing that I think is a challenge uh, for diagnosing patients and identifying, you know, other lines of therapy. Um, but I do think, um, it, as you mentioned, like finding other biomarkers, uh, finding further lines of treatment is, is definitely very exciting because before, maybe only 5 10 for a percent of patients with advanced disease would respond to second or third line therapies and have a very low, you know, progression uh, free survival. But now we're sort of seeing improvements with with HER2 therapies and some of the things that you talked about. Uh, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with biliary tract cancers, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the demographics of epidemiology for patients who present? Yeah, patients typically uh, there seems to be a predilection for females over males uh, with cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, there's about uh, ten to twelve thousand cases uh, diagnosed each year. Um, and as I had uh, mentioned, uh, these patients typically present at later stages of disease. So typically beyond the, the, um, the point at which they can have a resection. Um, so, you know, more of a disease control, palliative, intense systemic therapy type of situation for unfortunately a lot of patients. Um, patients who have previous um, predisposing factors would include like colodocolithiasis, um, calcifications in the gallbladder, uh, things of that nature can predispose you, you know, chronic inflammation in that tissue leading to the development of uh, malignancy, um, all things that can contribute to the development of cholangiocarcinoma. Yeah, that definitely all makes sense. And I know that one of the frustrating things that we see when it comes to screening is that a lot of the big cancers that we think about, like colon, breast, lung, we sort of have sort of, sort of you know, screening guides that are set by the USPSTF. Are, are there any kind of universal guidelines for, for gallbladder biliary cancers? They don't, unfortunately, no, there's not, there's not current um, guidelines and uh, for screening, we don't have good screening measures as we do for, you know, even things like low dose CT scans for, for lung cancer and, and at risk populations being smokers. We don't have that for cholangiocarcinoma, unfortunately. Um, and, and not that similar to pancreatic cancer, you, you see a very insidious uh, onset of disease, you know, patients um, can be fine for a long time and then they end up developing a pathology, you know, like an obstructive pattern um, where they, they ultimately kind of tip over and end up needing, you know, inpatient care or, or workup. And, and it's only at that point do we do we realize um, that they have cholangiocarcinoma and, and then how sick they are. So, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have good, uh, you know, imaging or, or blood-based uh, screening tests uh, for, for catching it early. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, nothing really right now that we can universally recommend to patients to get. And, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, should I get my gallbladder root if I have a family history? Those things aren't really settled in the, in the literature either. Uh, there's some exciting news. Uh, last year, there was a study published in Lancet where a team in India actually looked at abdominal ultrasound and had a sort of machine learning AI-based model to screen and detect uh, gallbladder cancer. So they're actually able to get the same sensitivity as radiologists. So perhaps uh, in the future, we might be able to kind of move the needle in, in that point. Um, are there any other points you'd like to make? No, I, I think that's very interesting. You know, you and I were talking before this, uh, the the concept of uh, AI and machine learning to help better augment radiological readings and, and and try and, you know, bolster our sensitivity for for screening and diagnosis. You know, certainly those types of avenues will, will hopefully bring um, more advancements so we can catch disease earlier. Because, you know, to be honest, um, you know, catching it before you, someone progresses to the point beyond resection is, is would be the, the goal. And, you know, you don't want to have to treat people with uh, systemic therapies. I think the big thing that I would, I would just reiterate is that, um, you know, I think it's really ingrained at large academic medical centers that whole exome sequencing really informs care. And, and it, it, it really uh, does make a huge difference in, in opening up treatment options, not just standard of care for, for, you know, maybe more nuanced and rare mutations, that could open up doors for targeted therapy, but also um, for clinical trials. So, you know, there's lots of novel therapeutic approaches. Like to your point, there's there's a lot more, um, you know, HER2 directed antibody drug conjugates that are in, in development. So testing for things like HER2 IHC expression is really important. And, you know, as we, there's been lots of studies published over the last 10 years that as we get into more rural centers, patients aren't getting whole exome sequencing as much. So I think just raising awareness around that and making sure that, we really are sequencing our patients and opening up every treatment option, be it standard of care or, or, or trial is, is, is the most important thing. Thanks for sharing those insights, Dr. Hatfield. Uh, just as I reflect on sort of this month, uh, just a couple of take home points. I think one for the public, uh, you know, as, as we talked about, there's not really any universal screening guidelines for detecting gallbladder or biliary cancer. So really just as importance of having a healthy lifestyle, uh, just avoiding smoking, trying to cut down on drinking, diet, exercise, those sorts of things. Um, and the second is just for physicians and providers, uh, you know, as Dr. Hatfield alluded to, just the role of holoxone sequencing, uh, sort of the importance of making sure patients are getting sequenced, getting genetically testing, so that we can open up different sort of lines of, of therapy for patients who progress uh, on, on what we have right now. Thanks so much uh, for sharing your thoughts and, and letting me answer those questions. And, uh, you know, thank you all. Have a, have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much.